Well, good morning. Hope you're well. Uh, we're going to be coming out of Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16, so you can go ahead and start turning there as you're doing that. I just want to, I already thanked uh, Benjamin, the search committee, the elder team uh, in the first service. I just wanted to do that again. Uh, we felt so incredibly graced by you all, welcomed by you all, especially those of you who've um, been with us throughout this week, and uh, we're really grateful for, for you all and for being here. So I loved to sing growing up. I'm the youngest of four brothers, and uh, imagine four little boys under 10 years old belting out Al Alvin and the Chipmunks in our living room. Uh, tennis racket, guitars, baseball bat microphones, we may or may not have had Spider-Man underwear on our heads, uh, but just absolutely loving it. And it. But it wasn't until high school that I really developed a love and affection for choral music. And uh, it was a, just a beautiful, majestic time of singing with a body of singers together, each with our unique voices coming together as one. We've worked hard on our part and um, being able to sing together, um, each different and diverse together as one. And so uh, music, and I think especially choral music, is an image and a metaphor of what we could call union. And union is the mysterious coalescence of many parts into one complete whole. That's what union is. And so uh, that's what we're going to look at. Just for a moment, I want to... Uh, share a, a brief video, a song that uh, we're going to just listen to a minute of, of a beautiful, beautiful song. It's called Sleep. It's, it was composed by Eric Whitaker. It's sung by eight uh, men and women in a, in a chamber choir format. And just consider as we're listening to that, that, that principle of union. You know, you have eight different people, even just with different stories, different lives, different voices, different vocal cords, um, different tones, singing different notes all together, making one beautiful song. So let's listen to that briefly. Amazing, right? Beautiful, beautiful. Even that, just that last, toward the end of that last chord where the soprano is way up high. Just this beautiful chord. Again, many voices, many notes together as one song. 
And that's really what we're going to talk about this morning, and that's coming out of Ephesians 4, really coming out of the whole book of Ephesians. So uh, in the church as sinners, a lot of times our communion sounds very different than that communion. Many times it sounds like a, a clanging cymbal. And that's really what was going on in the Ephesian church. Uh, and, and as we see it, uh, Paul's speaking into that. And yet, Paul isn't just speaking into the practical division between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews walling out the Gentiles, considering them outside of the church, barring them outside of the church, rejecting them, looking down on them. Paul's not just speaking into that. He's actually testifying to the broad plan of God, as we see in Ephesians 1.10, where he says that God set forth his plan in Christ for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And later on in Ephesians 3, right before Ephesians 4, he talks about the special, unique grace and call that God had given him to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And again, later on in that very same chapter, we hear about Paul saying that the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church. And contextually speaking, really what he's saying there is that manifold wisdom of God that's being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places is actually has everything to do with God's grace for the outsider, bringing them in two divided parts into one, that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are wowed by it. So that's what we're getting ready to jump into here in Ephesians 4. So we're going to read this. Something that we've done over at his mansion where Jamie and I have been serving is we like to stand for the reading of God's word. So would you stand with me and I will read God's word. And we stand to honor God's word um, as the infallible truth of God that we sit under. Um, And so let me read these verses. Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, 
speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we get low before you. We get low before your word. And we want to sit under your word. We want to understand your word. So I pray that you would empower me as I preach your word, teach your word, and that you would open up our hearts and make us fertile soil for your word. Lord, I pray that you would teach us what we do not know. Give us what we do not have and make us what we are not. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the main theme of Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 is this. God graces us in order to grow us in and only in union with Jesus Christ and with his body. That's our main theme and in Verse 1 through 3, we see this theme play out in in that the response to being favored is to favor. The response to being favored is to favor others. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That word calling is a New Testament word for the unmerited favor bestowed upon God's chosen people. We see in Romans 8 verse 30 that those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in that we see that to be called, as Paul is referring to here, is to be justified by grace through faith. It is to be glorified. In that we also see in, back in Ephesians 2 where Paul testifies to the gospel of grace, the calling of grace, that even while we were dead in sin, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. This is not of our own doing. Which again, he refers to that very same resurrecting grace later on in chapter five, where he says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's the call right there, awake, the gracious call. And when God says awake, people awake. In the same way that when God said, let there be light, light sprung forth out of nothing. So that's the meaning of call, and that favor bestows value on us. It bestows worth on us. We who were unworthy of that grace unworthy to be called by a holy God. He has called us and that bestows worth on us. He says, you're worth this sacrifice despite the fact that you're not worth this sacrifice. And the response to that worth is to pursue worthiness. I think a powerful example of this, a story is uh, about the story of Ross McGinnis. Ross McGinnis was a U.S. Army specialist stationed in Baghdad a number of years ago, and he was one day out on a Humvee patrol 
on the streets of Baghdad, had a number of his brothers with him, and uh, a grenade was tossed into the Humvee, a live grenade there, and Ross had a choice in that moment. He had a choice, uh, and he very well could have hopped out. He was on the top of the Humvee at the time, could have hopped out, made it to safety, and there were four brothers inside the Humvee, and rather, he jumped into the Humvee and laid on top of the grenade and absorbed the blast. Sacrificial love at its finest, right? And a brother of his who was in the Humvee, Ian Newland, when asked about why did Ross do this, Ian says this, because we were his brothers and he loved us. And he says, I try not to live my life in vain for what he's done. The only way to thank him is to live my life to the fullest. So I'll just say again, the response to worth bestowed by grace is worthiness pursued. The response, this response is motivated, motivated by joy and gratitude for the gift. When you receive a gift, the right response to receiving a gift is to honor the gift. Even more, the giver who gave it. You sacrifice to maintain the gift. My father helped put me through Wheaton College. And I remember there were days I didn't want to do the reading. I didn't want to go to class at 8.15 in the morning after staying up till 1 o'clock in the morning. I didn't want to do the homework. And yet I remember thinking through, I'm not paying for this. This education isn't my own. It led me, okay, I need to honor my father in this. I need to do this reading, even though I don't want to do it. i gotta, I got to learn something here in order to honor his gift. That's the response to worth giving, worth giving. And what Paul is saying is he's urging us to walk in that manner that's worthy of the calling that we've received. And the particulars of this worthy walk are humility, gentleness, patience, loving forbearance. Humility is a, is a deep recognition and acknowledgement of who God is and who we are. That God is high and holy and big, set apart entirely and yet good and loving and merciful and faithful, and yet we are small and finite and weak and sinful, while at the same time immeasurably loved by a holy God. Humility is recognizing our need, our brokenness, and our value before the Lord. And it's all throughout Scripture that God prefers the lowly. In Isaiah 66, he says, this is the one I will pay attention to, the one who is broken and contrite. That word contrite, crushed to powder is what it means. Trembles at my word. That's lowliness. That's humility. That's what he's calling us to walk in. Gentleness, to, gentleness is to deal tenderly with others in a way that acknowledges that we are members of one another. That word gentleness, even in the English, comes from the Latin root uh, that essentially means of the same clan. Or the word kindness, which is a, a very similar word, comes from the word kin. Again, family. So to be gentle is to treat people as if they were your very own blood. 
It's what friendship is. To treat people as if they were your very own. Patience. Patience is the willingness to endure the pain of wrong, to suffer the pain of wrong for the sake of maintaining fellowship with a brother and sister in Christ. Loving forbearance means to hold up the weak and the wounded as they bear burdens of affliction. And these four things in particular, along with a number of other things that can be considered in the worthy walk, these are not just a list of things to do. These are not designed to guilt trip us. They actually bear witness to the beauty of Jesus. This is the beauty of Jesus on display for us here. He is the gentle and lowly one. He says it himself, gentle and lowly in heart. He has suffered long with us in our sin and held us up in our affliction. Even more, he was torn apart for us, cast out of union, separated from the people of God that we might be brought in. He is the worthy one. And this beauty is captivating. To be graced by this beauty is to be changed. Grace never leaves us unchanged. If you are unchanged by grace, then you are not encountering grace. You are not receiving grace. And it motivates us to walk in a manner that honors Christ's name. So if this is beauty, if this is the beauty of Jesus, consider the wreckage that's caused by the fallen and foul opposites of this beauty. People who prefer their own comfort, unwilling to face wrong, cringing and stepping back from weakness, being harsh with friends as if they were enemies. And it may not look like a full-fledged assault on somebody that's wronged you. It may just be a passive contentment with surface-level relationships, or even just a pursuit of just enough distance from others to avoid entanglement with anything that would be difficult or may infringe on our freedom. And this foulness, that fallenness, that sin tears us apart. It fractures us. It keeps us distant from one another. It keeps us at odds with one another. It keeps us from going deeper with one another. And, and at its worst, it, it casts us out of fellowship. And this is why Paul is urgently calling the Ephesians to walk in this way, because it's this walk that maintains the unity and peace of the body, the bonds of peace. Humble, patient, kind people stay together and keep people together. So this is Paul's point. These virtues and this walk is not really for our own personal piety. It's for the purpose of bringing and keeping the body together. And the basis for that urgent call is what he goes into saying in verse 4 to 6. He says that God is one and we are one right now. We see in these four or these three verses that Paul is declaring present union. Not, not just union that's pursued, that we need to maintain, that we need to um, muster up. It's, it's union that's already there. He says there's one Lord, even Christ, one Spirit, one God and Father. We see the three members of the Trinity in glorious and perfect, loving 
union, sacrificing themselves for one another. Together, one body, many members, one faith made up of many truths about God, man, and salvation. This one faith bears, faith, faith bears witness to our one hope, our eager and sure expectation of future grace, that all will be made right and that we will be one together with God and with one another in perfect union. One baptism, which is the sign of our union with Christ in his life and death and in our union with one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, says this, Christian community is not something we create, but a reality that God's people steps into. We are one right now in the same way that my lungs are one with my pinky toe. Whether or not my lungs feel close to my pinky toe. So regardless of how you feel in this room, regardless of how close you feel to the people around you, whether you're in conflict with them, we are one already. And yet at the same time, we very rarely walk in that union that does not deny the fact that there is one body. So Paul is speaking into the fact that these Jews and Gentiles are cut apart. And he's saying, whoa, there's only one body. There's not two bodies. That's what he's speaking into. So he's urging the Ephesians to reckon with this present union, to stand in it, and to earnestly pursue it. And then we see in the remaining verses, well, just basically verses 7 to 12, that God's favor for you is God's favor for us. God's favor for you is God's favor for, you, for us. In verses 7 and 8, we see, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's clear, we've already talked about it, that we have all been shown grace in the same measure. We have all been adopted as sons and daughters as a result of nothing that we've done. We've been justified by faith. All of us, in the same way, nobody's more justified than somebody else. We've been loved by the Lord in the same way, and yet here we see that that love, that immeasurable love, that immeasurable grace is channeled here in a measurable way, in a unique way. We see unique grace here. See, unique, uh, or as Peter says in 1 Peter, varied grace. And he gives us some examples in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So an apostle, obviously we're talking lowercase a apostles, is somebody who's sent out. Missionaries that are sent out into foreign lands to see to reach unreached people groups with the gospel, to spread the kingdom in, in the fringes, on the margins, to plant churches that plant churches, to raise up leaders, to keep on going. A prophet, a prophet is, to, a prophet is one who bears witness to the coming fulfillment of God's promises of both blessing and judgment. They have a unique capacity to see the application of God's promises in the people of God or the coming perceived degradation of the people of God. And they call it, call it out. 
exhort the body, encourage the body, comfort the body, rebuke the body with the inspired word of God. An evangelist has the unique gift of preaching the gospel to the lost. A shepherd, or in the Greek, a pastor, as a shepherd shepherds his flock, they walk with people in the trenches of life. They disciple and raise up leaders. Teachers, in the Greek, shepherd teachers. So you have this intermingling of teacher and shepherd here. A teacher has a unique understanding and knowledge and the ability to clearly and compellingly communicate the word of God. And yet in addition to these five gifts of headship, some have called them, Paul speaks about all sorts of other unique graces throughout his letters. Specifically in, say, Romans 12, verses 6 to 8, he talks about the gifts of service, teaching again, exhortation, generosity, hospitality, leadership, mercy, compassion. In 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the gift of faith. Consider our unique, unwavering confidence in the sovereign goodness of God, regardless of circumstances. The gift of faith, the gift of wisdom, a unique discernment about what should be done, how it should be done, when it should be done, and why. The gift of administration, governing of government. And even in the Old Testament, Exodus 31, we see Bezalel being uniquely gifted in artistry and craftsmanship, where he was enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to make beautiful and structurally sound aspects to the tabernacle using bronze and gold and wood and stone. And one way to think about these gifts, I think that is helpful in understanding what these gifts are is unique graces are something that is supernatural that is made natural by the Holy Spirit. So faith, faith is supernatural. It's not natural for us to trust something that we cannot see. It's unnatural, and for a lot of us, it's very hard, especially in difficult circumstances. And yet someone with a unique gift of faith, it almost comes naturally. It's just this unwavering confidence in the Lord. We think about mercy. For a lot of us, to be merciful, to be drawn into people's suffering is hard. It's like, oh, I don't want to go near that. And yet somebody with the gift of mercy, it just comes out of them. They're just drawn into people's devastation. And these gifts are not just for the receiver either. These unique graces are all in reference to other people. So you think about teaching. Teaching isn't for the teacher. Preaching isn't for the preacher. Artistry isn't for the artist. Service isn't for the servant. All of these are to be given to others, for others, in relationship with others for their benefit. And in that, unique graces meet the needs of the body. Because we need to be taught. We need to be provided for. We need wisdom. We need help. We need to be exhorted and rebuked in our sin. We need someone to understand us and be with us in the trenches of our suffering. I think a couple examples of this, I have a friend, Josh, who has a unique gift of service. And I've just had a number of instances where a need is brought to Josh and he just drops everything to meet it. And one example was uh, we had some uh, work that we needed to get done on our car. Uh, This was before it it got totaled recently. Um, And 
you know, it was going to cost a fair bit of money. We talked to him about it. He's fairly good with cars. And he uh, you know, looked up these uh, discounted parts, and he spent seven or eight hours on a Saturday with me working on my car, meeting my need, teaching me how to change rotors and upper control arms. And um, I had no idea what those were uh, at the time. And I didn't really know what I was doing at the time, but also my friend Michael has a unique gift of generosity, specifically hospitality. And so he he brings people into his home, he makes them feel at home, makes them feel comfortable, uh, prepares a meal for them, treats them like family, and it just comes out of him. He doesn't really even need to try. Just comes out of him. And at his mansion, it's particularly meaningful because we have Loads of people that have come from dysfunctional homes, abusive homes, neglectful homes. Some have even lived homeless for periods of time. So here, Michael's meeting the needs of the body in a profound way. And in that way, additionally, unique grace equips others to operate in their unique grace. Unique grace empowers and equips unique grace. To equip means to make ready. Like Josh repaired my car He equipped me and he equipped my car to take me where I needed to go. The gifts of the saints given to the body prepare the saints to give their unique grace in ministry to the body. A good example of this is my dear friends Jeff and Denise. Uh, When I was heading out to his mansion a number of years ago, we operate as domestic missionaries. We raise our own financial support. And uh, I was, you know, raising support, came to them, and they, they committed to, to um, supporting me monthly. And again, it just kind of came out of them, especially Jeff, you know, it just came out of them. And I'll never forget what Denise told me when I was having a hard time receiving that gift and thanking them. And she reassured me. She said, you have gifts that I don't have, and you have a calling that I don't have, and we want to invest and equip you to operate in your unique grace, in that gift, and in that call. Unique grace equips us together to operate in our unique graces. And we see that in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Those are the, that's the purpose of these gifts. Even more, to build up the body of Christ. Unique grace builds up. That word build up means to strengthen, to fortify, even more to, to edify, that word edify, you hear the word edifice. So it's literally building up a structure in which the people of God can reside. Elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul also talks about uh, us being built up as a temple, a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So yeah, what is the, the point of that building up? If that's the, the point of the graces, what is the point of the edification? Why do we build each other up with our unique graces? And what we see in verse 13 and on is that we build each other up that we might grow up. In verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We see here that grace is given for growth. Grace is given for growth. Consider a, a, uh, 
a mother who has her unborn child in her, in her womb, does she give the nutrients provided for her child? Does she give that nutrients just because? Does she give to her unborn child just so that her child would be full and have a home? No, she gives that her child might grow. That her child might grow to a point where it's ready, equipped to come out of the womb. Even more, to, to become a little boy, a little girl. And then become a grown man and a grown woman. That's why she gives to her child. So grace is given for growth. So it is with Christ. Christ radiates his grace to us and through us in unique and broad ways that we together might come to know him, trust him, and grow to become like him. To become like him in his humility and kindness and patience and strength and discipline and righteousness and beauty and in his unity with the Father through the Spirit. So my friend, when he fixed my car, didn't just fix my car. He did that. That was not the only thing that was produced by his grace. No, he showed me Christ. He showed me the service that's rendered by the living Christ. Yes, unto all of us, but unto me. He graced me in that way. He channeled God's grace in that way and showed me Christ. And that encouraged me. It also challenged me, chastened me in my lack of service way that I'm more bent in on my own needs. But as he showed me Christ, it compels me to want to be like Christ, to follow his lead. And in that, we need each other like that. We need each other to show us Christ. We need to, to lead each other, to be led by each other. And in that, we are growing up into maturity. And this maturity brings unity. And this unity brings joy. And this joy brings desire. And this desire brings more and more and more grace in the body. And Paul contrasts this maturity in Christ with immaturity in verse 14. So we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. In their innocence, children have had generally little exposure to wrong. And so that generally tends toward unsubstantiated trust. They end up giving themselves to people that have not earned their trust. And a child is often vulnerable due to their natural tendency to be led by their desires in a way that's unfettered and without wisdom. And the wicked prey on the vulnerable. And Paul's saying we need to guard against that by building up the body. Saying that God's grace through the body brings maturity that produces sobriety. To be sober and mature means to be strengthened by love, grounded in what's true, sure of what's right, and driven by what is good. When we are grounded in this way, we are not tossed around by ear-tickling words, spoken by teachers that are not invested in our good, but are rather invested in their own prosperity and fame. We are grounded and in contrast to that immaturity that is lured by fickle and false doctrine, Paul calls us to work out our maturity by speaking the truth in love. So maintaining and pursuing unity in the body of Christ is in no way separate 
from speaking the truth. Speaking the truth gently, lovingly, humbly to one another. And we need to do this. We need to speak encouraging truth. Hard truth. Truth that will soothe. Maybe truth that will hurt for someone's good. We need to challenge sin and love and affirm the presence of Christ in our brothers and sisters so that we would grow up into the head, our Christ, from whom and through whom the body grows. So he's the one that's growing this. He makes the body grow. We are not building this body. We are channeling the unmerited and immeasurable grace through us to one another and ultimately to the people around us. So what does this mean for us? How can we apply these truths to our lives? I I think we need to start with acknowledging that we long for this. We long for this kind of community. We long to be known and loved. We long to be a part of something that's bigger than us, something that's grand, like God's big plan to unite all things. Be part of a family that's large and welcoming and yet at the same time, that, that we're valued in. And yet in sin, every community, even the best communities, are not as they should be. So what do we do with that? And I think three things that we can do with that today is to face, to name, and to give. So first, we need to face. We need to face our sin. Part of becoming healthy is recognizing that you're sick and how it is that you're sick. So we need to face the wrong in ourselves and how it affects the whole. We are prideful, impatient, we judge, we avoid, we hide, we prefer to do life on our own. And this splits up our fellowship, and we need to face that. And yet in that facing of our sin, we need to face Christ. For even though when we were a far way off, he has brought us near by the blood of Christ. He's brought us outsiders in. And so how can we treat others like outsiders? How can we treat our friends like enemies when he's treated us as enemies like friends? And in that, again, we're facing one another. The response to Christ's movement toward you is movement toward others. You can't have him without the body. In order to grow and mature, we need to face each other, seek each other out, our communal culture needs to mirror the doctrines of grace that we sing, that we preach, that we cling to. The gospel of grace should create authentic relationships that are marked by steadfast love. It should create a culture of friendship. That's gentleness, it's friendship. It should, we should have a culture of friendship in the body of Christ. And so I just encourage you and challenge you, who is your friend? Who is your friend today? Who are you intentional with? Who are you befriending? Who knows the deepest parts of your soul and, are, and is able to speak God's truth, loving truth in the midst of that, in those places? And maybe there's somebody that you need to intentionally pursue and face. But not only do we need to face, we need to name. And so in these meaningful connections, we can speak the truth in love. Part of that truth is naming Christ-like character in each other naming Christ's presence in one another. So when you see the beauty of Jesus in a brother or in a sister, call it out. Say, hey, 
I see Christ's compassion in you. I saw the way you saw that person who's going through a difficult time. And you, you went out of your way and you prayed with them. I think that's a mark of Christ in you. And I affirm that. Or I see faithfulness in you like Jesus is faithful. Or I see discipline in you. Or I see just a service in you that, that is marked by Jesus. And I want to affirm that. To affirm is to make firm. We affirm these glorious truths, biblical truths. We're not making them any more firm than they are, but we are making them firm in our hearts when we declare them. It's the same way when we declare the presence of Christ in another person, we make it firm. We strengthen it in some real way. We also need to call out sin in each other, the lack of Christ-likeness. Say like, hey, brother, I I saw the way that you, you just dealt harshly with this situation. I want to bring that to you. I want to just sit with you, talk with you about that. How can I encourage you in that? Um, and so, but in addition to uh, just naming Christ-like character, we need to name each other's unique grace. We cannot name ourselves. We can't name our own gifts. We need to be named by the body. Um, it's preferred to be in the body rather than online with a spiritual gift test. Um, this is supposed to happen with people, real people face-to-face who are saying, you have a gift of administration and you have that unique grace and I want to build you up so that you can build up the body with that unique grace. Again, you make that firm. And even in that, as we affirm each other's gifts, we need to give. Grace is given that we might be giving it to others. Grace is for you, yes, but it's also for the whole. These gifts are to be received and given. So in some ways, love isn't love until it's given away. Grace isn't grace until it's given away. And, and just to gently challenge us, if, if we are not giving grace in this way, we're stunting our growth in Christ. And even more, we're stunting the growth of the body. And why is that the case? Because we need each other. We need you. We need you to to give to us, to build us up. We need you to, to, to give your unique grace to us. And in that, as we're giving that to one another, we're growing up and maturing in Christ. And what ends up happening? Christ is seen in our midst. Christ is known, beheld, loved, trusted, and ultimately magnified and glorified, which is our highest good. And it's unto his glory again. And that's something worthy to pursue. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for truth that comes outside of us, that speaks to us in the places that we need it. I pray that you would bless uh, the declaration of your word this morning, that um, you would accomplish the purpose that you have sent it forth for, that you would challenge us and encourage us, that you'd bring us together as one this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.